Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this morning I'm bringing you a conversation I recorded this week with Mohammed Amin Ahmed and Mandy Hart, two media producers who are working at the intersection of religion, democracy, and civic discourse. I was excited to have them on the show because they have unique perspectives and insights to communities that, frankly, are pretty far outside my personal experience. Mohammed Amin Ahmed is a Muslim Somali immigrant and a peace advocate based in Minneapolis, who is founder of the platform Average Muhammad, which strives to provide educational narratives to counter extremist ideology. Mandy Hart is a committed Christian, a filmmaker with more productions, and president of Cave Pictures Publishing, a self-described faith-adjacent production company that creates films, theater, and comics that encourage pluralistic dialogue. Mandy and Muhammad talked about the motivation behind their work, and we also got into how each of them saw the current fractures in our public discourse from the perspective of their politically conservative communities. It was an illuminating conversation and definitely had its fair share of interfaith-ish, so enjoy this conversation with Mandy and Muhammad. So first of all, Mohammed, uh, I want to I want to say Eid Mubarak to you. Uh, since <laughs> we're approaching Eid al-Fitr here, um, I hope you've had a, a uh, spiritually enriching Ramadan. That is uh, awesome. Thank you, brother. Uh, Ramadan is almost over, so we are about to f- start our festivities. What do you have planned? We're going to Chicago. <laughs> you go. Oh, you're going to Chicago. Okay, you going on vacation a little bit. <laughs> we're going on vacation to Chicago. It's a much needed vacation. Nice, nice, nice. nice. What is hooked up? We mm-hmm. all got our vaccination. The kids haven't gotten vaccinated, but I mean, they haven't done anything for almost a year and a half now. So, have you been what? there before? I've been there a couple of times. Okay. My family, my kids have never seen Chicago. Okay, so that's like a major big city they're gonna go to, which they haven't seen before. <laughs> <laughs> So typically you're in you're in uh, Minnesota, right? Are you in in Minneapolis proper? Or are you outside of? of I'm state? in Minneapolis. Tell us a little bit about the 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 Somali community there. I'm really interested to know about um, uh, how it is that you, as a Somali immigrant, came to live in Minnesota and and what the community is like there. In the '90s, we mostly came here as refugees. I mean, there were Somalis in America. Somalis have been coming to America since the 40s and the 1910s. Uh, but in the 90s, uh, during the Civil War, uh, Bush one granted asylum status and refugee status to the Somali community mm-hmm. in Somalia. And uh, tens of thousands of us came to America. Now, they, if you're familiar with the immigration relocation program, they parcel you out. They parcel 5,000 to one city, another city, right, right. depending on what city accepts the refugees. And uh, what happened is people went all over the country and uh, folks in Minnesota kept on calling people and saying, look, here are their jobs. They pay 20 bucks an hour and they don't care if you don't speak English. Mm. That did it. <laughs> Good enough. They didn't mention the cold, I guess. No, nobody <laughs> mentioned the cold. <laughs> <laughs> that you have to figure out yourself. 
Right, 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 right. Well, Bring a coat. What's the that? Generation Somalis actually had a rough time because they didn't understand the winter, mm-hmm. and uh, you wouldn't believe how many people got frostbite. Oh yeah, because sure. they walk out in, the, in in their summer clothes in the mm. middle of winter, just put on a regular leather jacket, thinking it will it will help them in minus twenty degrees. <laughs> nope, that's not mm. going to help you. <laughs> and and how about your your religious upbringing in in uh, in Somalia? And then what was that? What community that did you did you find when you when you arrived in Minnesota? Well, it, religious upbringing was basically madrasa. And uh, madrasa mostly in Kenya. I went to madrasa in Kenya, okay, uh, with Swahili teachers and uh, Arabic teachers and Somali teachers. And uh, so madrasa is a is a religious school, Quranic. Uh, it's, it's an Islamic religious school. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the madrasa, you are trained in recitation of the Quran, how to read and write the Quran, and eventually, when you grow older, they teach you the meaning of the Quran. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, I didn't get that far. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't take uh, uh, that easily. Uh-huh. Uh, so I know how to read Arabic. I know how to read the Quran. But to understand it, I have to read the English version. <laughs> Got it. Got it. And so did you? do you feel like your family itself was a particularly devout family, a particularly religious family, or was it um, more of a, a cultural uh upbringing it's it's both mm-hmm. in, in the 80s and 90s growing up it was more cultural um, in the 2000s it became more conservative uh, as the religion spread knowledge of the religion spread uh, people became more conservative and it became something along the lines of uh, 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 deep held religious beliefs and and so for the community then that you landed in when you arrived in in Minnesota, did it have that same feeling? There, were, you could feel sort of a, a shift um, as you were a young adult. Well, that was quite interesting because when we came to Minnesota in the nineties, the mosques could not handle us. I mean, the number of mosques that existed, which from existing Muslim mm-hmm. community, were small, and uh, they catered to the local community, which at that time was less than a hundred thousand people. Mm. And then dumping a hundred thousand people. Right, space becomes a problem. So right. that's what the Lutherans, the Evangelicals, and the Catholics did. They offered up the basements of their churches. Right, right. Yeah, you know that was quite amazing. Interfaith alliance coming from Christians, uh, opening up their space of worship and saying you can do your Friday prayers here, while you guys are building up your community. That was quite interesting. Yeah, that's terrific that you had that experience. I'm glad that it was a, a welcoming spirit. Um, that was our introduction to America. Great. I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear that that was a, a strong aspect of it. So I, you know, personally, as I reflect, I on my own growing up, I didn't grow up with Muslim friends. I really didn't know any Muslims until I would say after college. Um, and the ones that I got to know first were really through interfaith spaces. So it tended to be people who take their faith seriously, they're active in the religious community or their organization or institution. Um, but of course, the more that I get to know people, the more that I see the diversity within the Muslim community. So, you know, now I have friends that go to mosque regularly and others that are more independent in their practice and friends that are converts. And I know Muslims that wear hijab and those that don't. I 
know Muslims that drink alcohol and Muslims who are gay and who are punk rock kids and and also, of course, plenty who are, you know, in very quiet sort of traditional families. Um, I guess my point is that there's there's no one way to be a Muslim. Like that's something that um, has become clear to me the more that I get to know more Muslim friends. Um, and I'm curious how you see this this diversity of ideology and practice in, in your family and, and in your community. Well, it's not monolithic that you, you got that part extremely right. Um, we live in a free society uh, where religion is a personal space between one's soul and their Lord. And depending on the level of religiosity, uh, you can be more religious or less religious, and um, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you find your own path to God. Everyone does. And uh, my experience is my community is not monolithic. You will mm -hmm. find Wahhabis, you will find uh, Salafis, you will find Sufis, and you will find other people who adhere to other denominations of Islam. And for for you yourself at this point in your life, do you feel like you are? Do do you consider yourself a, a a religious person? Are you active in your in your community, or do you feel like you're more of a secular secular Muslim at this point? I am more of a secular Muslim at this point. Mm -hmm. And when I say I'm a secular Muslim, it means that I believe I am a sinner and uh, in need of God's grace and mercy, just like every other human being out there. And um, but my outlook is, is secular. But the way I raise my kids is, is, is a good example of how I approach this. My kids go to, I can afford to go take my kids to an Islamic school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I send them to a public, a charter school where the kids are mixed because I want them to grow up in a mixed environment uh, with all races, all colors, all understanding. And uh, second thing is I spend money teaching them the Quran. I, mm -hmm. I send them to madrasa just like I was sent to madrasa. My daughters have memorized eight chapters of the Quran so far. So how are they doing compared to you? They're doing better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> do, well, do, you know, do you know that the world champion, when it comes to Quran recitation, comes from Minnesota? No, I didn't know that. I mean, Minnesota produces the best Quran reciters in the world we either we're always ranking in the top three in the world championships and they're somali and they're somali wow okay all right we built all that right. here in america i mean <laughs> it's impressive you, Beautiful. You, there's, there's so many things that people don't think of american muslims doing in america uh because the, the news is so negative uh but here we are thriving beautiful so, uh, Mandy, I want to turn to you and, and ask you similarly um, about your your upbringing and what was the type of religious environment that you grew up in? Sure. So I grew up in the Christian church from the earliest age. I mean, actually, my, my parents met at a, a Bible study at the church that they attended, attended when they were single 20s, um, starting their, their careers. So... From the very my my earliest age, um, grew up in in the Christian church, and we did move around a little bit. So we kind of bounced back and forth between North Carolina and Tennessee. But every time we moved, we would find a new church family, 
And then when I got to college and kind of plugged in with a community of my own on campus, um, I really you know, was able to take ownership of my faith at that point and take responsibility for finding a church family everywhere that I then moved uh, on my own both in, in college and afterwards. Yeah, so it seems like it's as long as I've known you, it's it's been a a focal point or a priority in your life, um, at least from what I've observed. Um, and and I'm also curious, you know, for yourself, you've always struck me as a very confident woman, very somebody who's very independent. Um, and and I, I don't know, would would you describe yourself as as feminist? Is that a term that you use for yourself? I don't use it for myself, no. Uh, but depending on how you're defining it, it could be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm thinking about it yeah. in, in those terms, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, being be really championing, you know, uh, opportunities for, for women and professional spaces and, um, and in the organizations that I, that I see working in and such. So, um, yeah, I was just, I was, I was wondering if that, if that type of um, strength, and 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 independent spirit was was part of the the Christian culture that you were raised in, um, you know. For, for particularly, I'm thinking of for for women in that community. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say I would almost universalize it more. Um, there's there's a psalm in which David writes about how God knits every. He, he, David is speaking about himself personally, but it is universally applicable how God knits every person together in their mother's womb. And he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your mm. works are wonderful. I know that full well. And and so for each individual realizing that God knit each individual together in his image for purposes that he has. And so he has callings for each of us that are going to look very different person to person and context to context, but being able to encourage uh, particularly within within any given church community that I'm a part of, being able to encourage one another to pursue the calling that God has on each of our lives and to step into that, uh, particularly, may, maybe particularly when it's unexpected, when it's something that you wouldn't necessarily kind of assume or expect based on maybe your family background or even family expectations. You mentioned that for you, um, you came into taking responsibility for your own, for your own faith mm-hmm. um, uh, in, or, at, at around college age. So what was, what was a, a formative uh, religious or spiritual experience that helped shape mm-hmm. your current worldview? Sure. And interesting that you use that term. So the first, my first exposure to the term worldview and that whole concept, I was in high school and I attended a, basically it was a summer school, two, two week long seminar about Christian worldview and what is the influence, the impact, the implications of the Bible for all of life. And as a 15 year old, for the first time in my life, I was challenged to articulate what I believed and why. And kind of at root, the the whole seminar for for each of the participants took the the approach of your burgeoning adults, you're now teenagers, you you have a mind of your own. 
-hmm. and you're coming into the space of needing to decide for yourself whether you actually believe the faith that your parents have raised you in or not. And if you do, why? If you don't, why? And, and being able to, to articulate for yourself or for myself, as the case would be, what I really believed. And, and that totally changed my life and was a joy at the time. And I really just dove headfirst into doing a lot of reading and research on my own and even getting into some teaching on my own at my youth group back mm -hmm. at my home church. And that's really influenced the trajectory of my life ever since. So that was probably the most formative, at least in my, my own memory. Were there things that you were struggling with as a, as a teenager regarding your faith or, or did it come to you fairly easily during that time? Hmm. Well, I, I would say struggle wise, it's always a challenge to, to walk out a relationship with the God of the Bible, because by definition, he is so much bigger than we can see. And there are times that he feels distant or far away. And even though you know in your head, even though I know in my head, that's not true. Uh, he says in scripture that he never leaves nor forsakes me, uh, that he, he loves me with an everlasting love. He's drawn me with loving kindness. There's just repeated uh, affirmations of truth in scripture, but to walk that out, particularly when the circumstances of life are challenging, is is always a struggle. But that's part of the blessing that God has given us in the church, that he gives us a family that even if we don't share DNA, uh, biologically speaking, we share spiritual DNA in Christ that is that much more, more powerful. Uh, so we're able to, to come alongside one another and spur one another on in faith, particularly when, when the going gets tough. Mohammed, coming back to you, as you are hearing what Mandy's talking about and and um, thinking about this idea of of really capturing um, the the attention of of young people at that formative age, um, I wonder if if that connects to what your goals are for your project, Average Mohammed, and some of the media that you create that's oriented particularly towards younger people? It is quite interesting what Mali said. He said the church was an umbilical cord in so many words. It is the same way within our community, our mosques, our umbilical cord, which connect us spirituality. And uh, what we found out is when the kids stray from the mosques and they move into uh, social media and uh, we call it Sheikh YouTube. <laughs> that's, that's when they get into trouble mm -hmm. and uh, they pick up on values which are antithesis to what is being taught at the mosque. Here's the thing what we found out. We found out our mosques are the places whereby the kids find community, 
Our mosque is where the kids find values. Our mosque is where the kids find safety. And our mosque is where the kids find a sense of belonging. And uh, what happened is when we do the messaging on social media or when we do outreach, we're trying to replicate the same feeling as the mosque. And what we're trying to replicate is the sense of belonging. Now, we are geared towards promotion of democracy, but the first value we promote is peace. Now, peace is a fundamental human value. You don't have to believe in God to believe in peace. You just have mm. to be a human being. And this is a fundamental Islamic value. And uh, this value of extreme views and extreme ideology is one which forced me to create an average Muhammad. Basically, a regular guy who's not Klaji Muhammad, who's not Imam Muhammad, who's <laughs> not just a regular guy trying mm -hmm. to espouse their religion from an extremist view, from a secular view, basically saying, look, live and let live, you know, just like what the religion teaches. And uh, we find that to be very important. And so d tell us a little bit about the form that Average Muhammad takes. So for people that aren't familiar with, with your platform, what are what's the type of media that you're creating and, and what is the... Um, the specific type of messaging that you have in those uh, videos? We have five activities that we do. Number one, we create cartoons. And it's a one minute to one minute and a half long messages, which basically takes a value, takes a concept, takes an understanding, whether we use the Quran, uh, which is the holy book of Muslims, or we use the Hadith, which is the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, peace be upon him, or we use logic, or democratic values, or values of humanity, which is agreed upon and negotiated with uh, in the course of human history. Uh, the second part we do is uh, exactly what I'm doing with you, media outreach. And uh, the main reason why we do that is because we want to amplify our message uh, besides creating viral videos to basically go out and speak to the public and get our concepts and ideas into the mainstream society to empower people, clergy, uh, regular people, teachers, educators, and things of those sort. The third part we do, an activity, is we go into schools, madrasas, mosques, madrasas are Islamic schooling, uh, mosques, synagogues, churches, and all other places. And we go out there and we also talk about our points and our messaging. The fourth thing we do is we engage publicly in the street level and promote our values and our concepts whether it's at festivals or events, uh, whereby we chatter uh, a space or a booth. Uh, and the fifth value we do is we train non-governmental organizations, government officials, we train uh, activists, clergy, Muslims, uh, non-Muslims, how to go about talking to their community and, uh, and, and engage in their community in values which are anti-extremism. Mandy, I'm 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 curious for you if if you can uh, share a little bit uh, about about your work with More Productions and your other projects at Cave Pictures Publishing and how how you're using your commitment to religious beliefs to guide those productions and and the themes you explore. Sure, sure. So for all of our content, we look to tell stories that are good, true, and beautiful. 
And we're always looking to evoke in the audience reflection on their own journey as well as kind of their place in the world and their responsibilities in society. And it's interesting, Mohammed, you've had such an experience of, of pluralism, and that's been one theme that is common to a lot of the content that we have produced, just the value of a pluralistic society and of protecting rights of conscience and, and religious liberty rights for all. And on the one hand, I can understand that it, it can be scary, if you want to put it in, in those terms, uh, to allow someone who believes differently than you to have a public platform. But instead of giving into the fear, I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity to dig deeper into your own faith and, and to go back to that question of, okay, what do I really believe and why? And you know, we each have the capacity to search for truth and ought to give one another the space to pursue their search as well. And I think we all, we all believe to some extent that we have found it. And to the extent that the truth that you found is beautiful and it's something that you want other people to know, then a robust dialogue and, and a robust pluralism is vital for that. Mm. And at least, it, okay, within, within the Christian worldview, we believe every person is created in God's image, created for him. St. Augustine has this great quote about our hearts. God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And if we really believe that, then we ought to engage in robust dialogue about what is truth and who is God and who are we. And I think American society is, is living right now through a real point of, of tension about the question, who are we as humans? Who am I as a human being? Yeah. And rather than squelching that dialogue and silencing voices that we disagree with, I think it ought to be an opportunity to engage in deeper conversation. And so that, coming back to your question, Jack, uh, that is really the, the goal of all of our content is to contribute to that conversation about what is truth? Who is God? Who are we? And certainly for us individually, myself and my colleagues, we have our own answers to those questions. And we do believe that they are objectively true. But in our stories, we don't ever want to use it as another form of propaganda. Mm. Rather, we want to use it as these stories as an opportunity for conversation. And, and we do believe that when, when people are earnestly seeking for God, he will reveal himself, and he has revealed himself, he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And 
and that we can have those conversations around truth without having to, to silence voices that we disagree with. To clarify, so the the groups that you're associated with that you work for, More Productions and Cave Pictures, um, are are would you say that they're explicitly Christian production houses, or are they Christian inspired? How do you how do you define those? Yeah, we those usually ideas? say that we are we're faith resonant or faith adjacent. Okay, so we don't <laughs> look to to reach an exclusively Christian audience, even mm -hmm. though we do come with a Christian framework to our own belief system. Um, we really look at our content as accessible to anyone who considers themselves interested in faith, interested in spirituality, and, and seeking out what is true. And we wanna have a positive impact on society by producing quality content that does point to the truth. You mentioned a little earlier, Mandy, that obviously we're in a very divided cultural moment right mm -hmm. now. And, you know, obviously, as media producers, the both of you are, are very much aware that uh, media engagement drives a lot of um, our perspectives and the information that we receive and, and also is contributing a lot to the divide that we have because we get our information from very different sources. You've talked a little bit about how um, the media and storytelling you're involved with uh, seeks to uh, reestablish, I think, a more civil discourse in mm. society. Um, but I'm also I'm also curious because I think the the both of you move um, more regularly in in perhaps more politically con conservative communities than I do. Um, I'm curious how you hear um, that discourse happening, you know, in 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 those in those circles in those communities, and is it, you know, talk about talk about trust in media and what you're you're seeing there, Mandy? Mm. Well, I would I would say for the most part, what I hear is a profound distrust in institutionalized media, at least the traditional media institutions, which is then spawning a lot of quote unquote alternative media sources mm -hmm. that tend to have a specific a specific frame that they are presenting information through, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it can become too ideological to the point that it the pendulum swings in the opposite direction and and i think it's one thing to present information from kind of an understood shared acknowledged ideological frame that is still respectful of those that disagree with you but too often I fear on both sides, it ends up being derogatory to, I mean, even just the language of like your opponents. I, I don't even like that sort of adversarial language. Mm -hmm. even, and I think it's because of how divided society has become. It's one thing to, to have 
opposing ideas, but still respect the other person. And the two, the two gentlemen that I've seen do this remarkably are Robbie George and Cornell West. Um, just Googling them and, and, uh, looking at some videos of the two of them speaking together. They have very different worldviews, very different, uh, policy perspectives, but they are so kind and respectful to one another. And, and I wish the entire country could just kind of take a master class with them about what it looks like to engage in civil discourse because mm -hmm. they really just knock it out of the park doing so. Mohammed, what about what about for you um, uh, in in your community in the in in uh, the political circles as well that you you move in? Um, what are you what do you hear in terms of the relationship with? with media and, and as Mandy was saying, the trust in those other institutions, um, government, religion, so forth. What I've seen and experienced is uh, what you can call a media bubble. And when I say a media bubble, I mean people are listening and hearing what they want to hear and exclusively what they want to hear. And everyone else who says anything different is a lying, lying human being and we don't trust them. So which means most people don't trust mainstream media, but they don't trust uh, other media too, except for the media they approve of, which is tailor-made to them uh, and, 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 the, and the understanding. Uh, what, I, what I can say is the marketplace of ideas that used to exist in America has fractured. Uh, it's no longer a marketplace of ideas, it's a marketplace of grievances. Let me explain what I mean. It is grievance against whether you are liberal or conservative. Uh, the other side is wrong, but uh, that is acceptable because you, you already believe in something. But the concept now is we want to destroy you. Mm. That is something that is rather very uniquely new to America. And it's becoming worse by the day. And... Uh, we're seeing that. For example, when I started Average Muhammad organization, I didn't know what kind of reception I would get. My community embraced me. And uh, the greater community in Minnesota and America embraced me. And then before you know it, the whole world embraced me. I've done over 1,800 media interviews. Popularity is not an issue. Name recognition is not an issue. Saturation of my message within my community is not an issue. But I got almost a thousand hate mail from the far right. And then I got hit by the left, the far left, because they say that I am promoting the evil empire and I'm an excuse maker for America, defending America and promoting uh, countering violent extremism. Uh, that shocked me. And uh, it is an experience I've experienced myself. So what I've come to learn is you have to be very thick-skinned if you're going to try understand America today. It is complex. Society is fragmented. It is coming from the people. And media is chasing the people. They're chasing ratings. And controversy seems to be the only thing that gets rating now. If they can get you to get angry, get uh, agitated, uh, that works for them. It means dollar signs for them, but it doesn't do any good for our democracy and our society. Mm. 
-hmm. That is why I endorsed the program. A friend of mine introduced me to this program called BraveAngels.org. BraveAngels.org does not want to change a person from being a red or from being a blue. They just want to change the tone and the rhetoric level so that people can talk to each other with dignity, respect, humanity, and understanding. Mm -hmm. This is important. So I'm curious, what, what, are, the, what are the concerns that, that you hear um, from people in your circles? The concerns is people are used to seeing things in a certain way, and all of a sudden, a change happens, and we're going in a different direction. That basically is scaring people, and uh, people are trying to take advantage of it and make political hay out of it. Now, you have to understand, 70% um, of the people who I associate with believe there was something wrong with the elections. 90% of the people who are on the left believe there was nothing wrong with the election. Uh, I mean, even the most basic of things, we can't seem to agree with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and that, is, that is scary. That is scary because if you think of what an election means, it's the most basic component and exercise of a citizen in a democracy. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that's in your Somali community, in the broader Muslim community, or are you saying other communities that you're a part of? In the broader conservative community I belong to. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And what, what do you think, why, why do you think there's such a large percentage that hold on to that idea that there, there was something fundamentally... Um, in error with the, with the election process? Well, the outgoing president said so publicly, and he's still saying it, mm -hmm. you know? And, and the community is, is, is lined up with him still. Well, they voted for him at 76 million people, uh -huh. you know? So this is something that they align with uh, because he was their speaker, he was their champion. Mandy, I'm curious for you also if, if um, in your in in your communities, if you hear uh, similar things, if there is you know a, a mistrust of the the current administration, either on, on a fundamental uh, legitimacy level, like Mohammed's saying, or um, even in terms of um, just concerns about about getting quote unquote back to normal um, mm -hmm. with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I've heard a whole lot of concerns about kind of the fundamental electoral legitimacy, at least within my personal circles. Um, but I'm certainly aware of those concerns within a kind of politically conservative uh, framework, concerns about, about election integrity. And, and I know there's been a lot of frustration around some of the recent voting laws and how quickly it seemed like the, the laws, particularly in Georgia, were immediately framed in a, in a particular kind of political language that did not seem to be reflective of the substance. Because I remember hearing kind of side-by-side -side comparisons between Georgia and New York and a couple other kind of Western states and how the substance of the law didn't seem to differ that much from these other states. And yet the rhetoric around it was so, just so strident. And, and I know there was a lot of frustration 
around that. I think one one conversation that I would like to hear more of, um, at least within my, my own personal circles, and I, and I try myself to engage more on is, is just to what extent, the extent to which politics has pervaded everything. And on the one hand, it's not, surpri- not surprising to me that in an increasingly secular society, when there is a loss of a sense of something transcendent or supernatural that is ultimate, what are we left with? We're left with politics. And so politics becomes ultimate. And mm. it doesn't make, it somewhat in a twisted way makes sense that politics would devolve into kind of demagoguery and demonization because there isn't an alternative within a, a naturalistic worldview, if this world is all there is, then we fight it out tooth and nail in the sphere of politics, and you don't have a frame for human dignity. You know, might, might makes right in that sort of, of worldview. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, even as we have a yearning for transcendence and a yearning for a return to civility and for living with one another. And I wish I could remember, I feel like there's a a quote from one of the founding fathers about how you needing to have a willingness to die for someone else's right to believe differently than you or to speak differently than you. It's not just about me having my rights, it's also you having your rights and and we can disagree with that and I need to be willing to shed my blood for yours even when we're going to disagree. Um, And at the same time that we've lost that in a kind of a functional way, I don't think we've lost it in a heart desire kind of way, at least amongst amongst some people um, wanting a, a return to a place where politics is a sphere of existence, but it doesn't define everything. It's not ultimate. I want to add to that. De Tocqueville said, the French philosopher, I may not believe in what you have to say, but I will defend with my life for your right to say it. Mm. Uh, that's a value that was back from the 17th century when people are more uh, starting to figure out what free speech means. We live in a society today where people are afraid to say what they think. People are self-censoring themselves because of the vitriol that will come if they believe what they say comes out the wrong way. And that's one of the things that is really scaring us because with free speech comes free ideas. With free ideas come the best ideas. And uh, it is a shrinking marketplace of ideas now. And that is not good for our democracy. It's not good for anybody. We all lose in the end, all of us. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious then on picking up on, on that point, um, you know, coming back to this idea that the both of you talked about, about, you know, pluralism and the importance of strong dialogue and so forth. When it comes to, um, you know, something like the, uh, the, public health measures that that we're currently trying to figure out, right? It's not a clear path forward, but there's um, 
certain health and public health institutions like the CDC that provide guidance and, and regularly update that guidance. And yet there's, there's also a very strong pushback against um, uh, adhering to that guidance, either on a personal level or, you know, in, in um, states whose leadership are, 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 are doing their own thing. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how, how do each of you feel about it when it comes to something like that, where uh, it would seem like it would be uh, science and, and sort of rational and, and objective, and yet, uh, to Mandy's point, you know, even that has been politicized. Well, I did a campaign when COVID-19 started. And um, we did a social media campaign in six countries, including America. And the other five countries were in Africa. And uh, we espoused the values of washing your hands, wearing a face mask, avoid social gatherings, even if it means not going to the mosque, uh, when the pandemic is high. And um, here's the thing. Uh, people in Africa put up 10,000 messages. Most of my messages came from a country called Tanzania. And the message was, we don't have coronavirus here. Tell it to other countries. It doesn't exist in our country. And I was farthest from the truth. And uh, this pushback and this resistance to what the medical science is saying is because it is in conflict with personal freedom and people value their personal freedom and the explanation as to the reasoning why is to save lives but because it's gone on for so long people are beginning not to trust the source those who already believe in it believe in it mm -hmm. those who don't well they need some convincing and that will have to come from sources of trust which are still trusted the clergy the uh, the doctor in the neighborhood uh and and and, and people who are active in the neighborhoods yeah and, more uh, on a local level it sounds more like on the local level because yeah. i don't know about you but trust in government is actually at an all-time low not just in america but across across the world mm -hmm. because precisely they lie too much yeah you know? Mandy, for for you in the in the communities that you move in and and maybe are in touch with through with family um, mm -hmm. throughout the the southern states, what what was what was that conversation like um, over over this past year? Oh, it's it's been a difficult one. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like the very the very fact of a global pandemic if anything is a humbling experience, this ought to be it <laughs> in terms of putting us as, as frail human beings in our place. Um, and yet I've, I've had a hard time with some of the, the real vigorous assertion of personal rights to do or not do certain things while that may be true and I you know, don't necessarily dispute that, I've tried to take this as it, an opportunity to make a fairly minor sacrifice when you think about quarantining or wearing a mask. I can make the choice to engage a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of inconvenience for the chance of saving someone else's life. And I think 
there's probably a difference in perspective based on just how close to home has the pandemic hit because by God's grace, I've not lost a close loved one, but I have a good friend who did. And I've seen how much it broke her heart to have lost her grandmother without getting to say goodbye. No one got to be with her and she never got to introduce her grandmother to her child. And, and just how much of, of a devastation that was for her made me much more sensitive to what am I doing and, and what can I do in order to hopefully help protect someone else. And so I've, I've tried to take more of the perspective of this is an opportunity. And, and when I've had conversations with friends or loved ones, yes, I do agree that every individual has to come to their own conclusion about how they're going to navigate this. But to the extent that I can encourage someone to come at it from a posture of humility, a, a posture of how can I use this opportunity to show love to others and, you know, make a small, what I would consider a small sacrifice in terms of wearing a mask, um, a small sacrifice for the greater good. Cause you just never know who you might be protecting in doing so. Do you think that that extends now to getting vaccinated? Do you find that there's that same hesitancy or resistance in in mm. either in your in your personal circle um, to vaccination? Not in my personal circle for the most part, um, but it has been a difficult conversation to have, and you know, to hear you have people that hear information from varying sources and trying to discern what is reliable and what isn't. I mean, I have had conversations with my parents about where where do you get your information about safety versus risk? And, and there was a really good video series. It was produced by a professor at Duke Theological Seminary. And he was also, I think, visiting Professor Fuller. And one of his early videos kind of pointed out to, to Mohammed's point about trust, how in general with medical interventions, we trust our doctor, we trust research institutions, we trust universities, we trust the FDA, we trust government, other government agencies for any prescription that you receive, any test or you know, screening that you go through, you, you trust any number of entities that have have tested and experimented and kind of passed, you know, let, let a particular prescription or, or test pass <laughs> to be used by the public. He said, for the most part, you can't explain biologically what's happening with a given prescription, given intervention. You just trust those many layers of vetting right. by the time it gets to you. And, as he presented it, you know, the vaccine is, is not different in that respect. Um, and I, and I just thought his, his presentation was very thoughtful in trying to, to discern well how to, to navigate the situation. So I, yes, I have had a lot of, a lot of conversations and it's been challenging, but 
it's amazing how much trust or the lack of it has played into this. Dear listener, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, but before I let Mohammed and Mandy go, I wanted to make sure we held some time, as we do every episode, for my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own about points they felt were important to follow up on. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue without being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I turn it back over to Mohammed and Mandy. My question is for Mandy. How do you avoid that stalemate, you know, that getting into when you're producing, not to become propaganda, and instead of being conversational? Um, and how do you keep it original every time? Great questions. Well, I think one good check for us is just how collaborative storytelling is for all of our projects. We're working with a team and that's helpful because we have team members that come from different backgrounds, whether it's a different faith background, which occasionally happens, or just within the, you know, the, the Christian world, they come from a different generational background, different geographic background, different you know, uh, denominational background. And that is always helpful because you have multiple voices that are going to bring their own perspective. And, and that I think has been a good kind of check for us. And I think as well, we, we gravitate to like-minded individuals who like-minded creatives who are looking to tell stories in a similar way as we are. So that helps just by virtue of how we all approach. Certainly we have had plenty of conversations and, and sometimes worked with individuals that would be more inclined to, we, we, we call it kind of being on the nose, a little more direct. and. For the most part, if they have a project they're pitching that they want to take in that direction, we step out of it and say that's just not the sphere in which we operate and the audience that we're trying to reach. But sometimes we can partner together and do something that is is for a different audience and is looking to be less direct and a little more I don't know if subtle or nuanced is, is the way to phrase it, but more engendering a conversation as opposed to trying to deliver a message. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and then I would, I would be curious just to hear, you talked a little bit very early on about having spent time in Kenya and just in, in your travels from birth to the U.S., how did your refugee experience impact your your view of God and and your your religious upbringing, uh, both the just geographic moving around, but also just the human experience of of being a refugee while also trying to 
learn your own faith? Well, I can tell you I was uh, 18 when I came. The excitement mm -hmm. was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I mean, coming to, I mean, we grew up watching MTV and BET music channel uh, mm -hmm. growing up. And then coming to the land and seeing the cities, DC, New York, uh, Houston, Texas, uh, Los Angeles. I mean, I traveled. I, I didn't stick to one place for the first two years. I traveled, get the lay of the land. And uh, I was working, saving up money and then traveling and traveling and traveling, road tripping. And what I learned is that you can be anything you want to be in America. We have a great country here. And uh, the country is open. People are open. They're curious about you. Who are you? Where are you from? Uh, and then they're also curious about what you think, you know, and, and the foods, the most democratic, diverse thing I've ever experienced in America is our food. Unbelievable. You can eat Chinese, Mexican, you can eat Indian, all on the same block without even leaving one block. And uh, this is impressive. I mean, this was exciting to me. And uh, I moved to Minnesota and the excitement continued, the culture. Then you start appreciating the history because you have to learn the history of the country to understand the lay of the land too. And, uh, and you go back and you learn about the mishaps and the good things about America. And what I've learned and I've experienced in America is diversity is our strength. People are welcoming, majority people are welcoming. And uh, this has greatly influenced me to the point whereby I felt comfortable creating Average Muhammad, taking a risk. Mm -hmm. And there is a risk because I do get death threats from Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, telling me they'll behead me if they get their hands on me because of the work I do, because we're stopping the recruitment into the efforts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason why I'm able to take this risk is because of my experience in America. It's been a good life. Well, it sounds like that's a that's a beautiful uh, note to to close on. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. you're, you're, you are clearly a master of storytelling, Muhammad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for, to the both of you for taking the time to be part of the show. And um, like I said again, Muhammad, I I wish you and your family a wonderful Eid and all of your excitement uh, hitting the big city of Chicago. Chicago is going to be awesome. What's your first meal when you break fast at Eid? What's what's the good Somali dish that uh, that you look for? Sambusa. We love sambusa. So okay, all right. Break it down for us. What is what is that? Sambusa is is, is a triangle shaped, uh, flour covered, uh, meat inside with spices, and it's Great. deep fried. Nice, nice. Well, the next time next time I have the opportunity to go to Minnesota, I'm going to hit you up for recommendations of the good Somali places to go out and find. When you come to Minnesota, the best place to eat is in my house. <laughs> I'm going to take you up on it. Be careful. Right. Trust me, I will cook you delicacies you've never had before. Welcome to goat meat and sauteed liver and kidneys and, <laughs> and about 10 different varieties of fruits. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Mandy, here we go. Road trip. You hear it. All right. Mandy, That's same offer to you. If you have in Minnesota, reach back. Thank you. Will do.
Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to Muhammad and Mandy. You can find Muhammad's work at averagemuhammad.com and Mandy's projects at moreproductions.co and cavepicturespublishing.com. Those links in the show notes to this week's episode. As always, a big thanks to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller and our musical maestro Jeff Philosopher for providing our theme music. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Remember to leave a rating and a review. You can follow us on social media at interfaith-ish and like our content. And, of course, we want to hear about what you've learned from our shows, dear listeners, so keep writing us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.